This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. The following talk by Dr. Lisa DeMoor was recorded live in November of 2018 at the Assistant Heads, Division Heads, and After School Directors Conference at the Mohonk Mountain House. Here, Dr. DeMoor, clinical psychologist and author of the books Under Pressure and Untangled, speaks about the rising levels of anxiety and stress in our culture and the pressures these place on families and schools today. The title of her talk, Collaborating with Parents. The way that I assess these things has to do with resistance, that my field is about resistance, that when people come into my clinical practice, they are there spending time and money wanting to change, and invariably what you find is they don't really want to change, right? And so my entire training is around that piece of it, the wish for help and the refusal of help that comes side by side. And The more we just appreciate that resistance is a very fundamental human trait, the better off we are. And part of how I think about it is imagine if you were upstairs trying to decide which of two shirts you were going to wear. And you ultimately go, you know, the blue shirt or the red shirt, and you ultimately go with the blue shirt. And you come down and your life partner says, oh, but what about the red shirt? You'd be like, no, I like my blue shirt. Right, like that would be your first instant reaction, even though like 30 seconds before you were on the fence about the whole thing. That when people tell us to change or to make a change, the first thing humans do is just resist, just push back on that. And so um, to the degree that I can be useful, it's in thinking with you about how do we manage resistance in the interactions we have with parents, because in a lot of those interactions, we're asking them to make a change. And so that's already asking quite a bit of them. Um, I would like to make a blanket thank you to Laurel School, where I have worked for the last 15 years. I'm there every Monday and Tuesday. And I will tell you, of all the things I get to do in my life, it, it is like just my favorite professional aspect of my life. And the work I am sharing here is very much a function of being around the really, really smart and wonderful and amazing people at that school. So I just I, I want to make sure that that gets acknowledged here. Okay, so you and parents come together and here's what we have to acknowledge. First of all, parents see you as having power. And we forget this, we forget this, and we want to have an awareness of this. They are very well aware that our assessment of their, chi- of our, of their child influences our assessment of them. And we'd like to think this isn't true, but in truth, this is how it goes. Um, we do make connections between the kids we have in our building and the people who have put them in the building. And my own husband is a teacher at um, at St. Ignatius in in Cleveland. And he came home from parent-teacher night one night and he said, you know, it's so funny, like I'll have this guy in my class and I'll be looking at him thinking like, buddy, you gotta get it together. Like this isn't going well at all. And he said, and then parents' night comes, and I meet his folks, and I'm like, dude, you're doing okay. You're doing all right. You know, and I think that every, like, we all recognize that, right? We 
which is to say we do make these links between how the student is functioning in our building and what we think of the parents. And that is true, maybe we don't always do this, but minimally the parents are thinking we do, and I think often the parents are not wrong. Secondly, they know we know things about their kids that they don't know. That's a really interesting, I'm gonna say it, form of power, right? Like that's a really interesting form of power. And some of them are, are very benign, right? We can compare their fifth grader to the thousands of fifth graders who have gone through our halls. And so that gives us a whole lot of information that the parent doesn't have. We also see how their ninth grader operates in the hallway, how she operates in class, how she operates with her peers. Um, and especially by the time we're taking care of teenagers, it's not at all unusual that teenagers are much more open and forthcoming at school than they are at home, right? So we know a lot of things about teenagers that their parents may not know because the teenagers are telling us. The parents may also be wondering, do you know about the fight we had last night, like my husband and I, right? Or do you know about um, the drinking problem that we're dealing with in our older child? You know, I mean, they don't know what we know, and that is anxiety-provoking for them, too. Um, parents see us as having power over their children's grades. And, you know, grades are really loaded for parents, and they mean a lot of things, different things to different parents, but for a lot of parents, they mean, you know, the future and what I'm paying you for and what this is all about and what it means. Um, and I think for a lot of parents, they see us as, like, linebackers. Like, here's the parent or the kid, here's the grade they want, and they see us as the barrier between them. And that, that is a, a difficult situation that we walk into. And the other thing, and I think this is so easy to forget, some parents really hated school or had really bad experiences at school or saw school as a place where you go to be sorted, right? Those of us who choose to work in schools, we probably liked school. Right? And we probably felt good in school, and we felt that school was a place that showcased our talents. Um, that is not true for all of the parents. So walking in to a school feels really different for different people. And certainly by the time parents are in an administrator's office, you may be dealing with what we call a lot of ghosts in the nursery. You know, there may be a lot of ancient history coming back. And I remember sort of becoming aware of this, we had a mom, it's been probably 10 years since I was working with her, who was a really kind person. I will tell you, over the course of many, many conversations, it became clear to me that school was probably not a place where she thrived. She just, that was just not where her strengths were. And she would come to our meetings dressed to the absolute nines. I remember thinking, like, and every time we would meet, I would think, like, where are you going next? Like, you look amazing, right? And then it started to occur to me that like, what she was going to was our meeting. And I just thought, this is your suit of armor. Walking in this building is painful and frightening to you. And you are here in full Armani and all the jewelry and all the everything because this feels so bad, right? And of course, what do we hear about? Your child who is under-functioning in our building, right? So that dynamic is all at play. Um, okay. Then, educators can be frightened of parents. Um, this is less true of you administrators, more true of your teachers, so I want this to ha be on our minds all the time. There are plenty of people who get into teaching because they love kids. Actually, usually that's why people get into teaching, is because they love kids. 
And I have been surprised in my time at Laurel to come across several teachers who, when I've asked them to present at conferences and stuff, they're like, oh no, I don't talk to grown-ups. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, you're like this phenomenal, you know, 10th grade math teacher. Like, I see you with the girls, you're incredible. And they'll be like, oh yeah, no, I love, oh, I love the teenagers. No, I, I can't stand talking to grown-ups. And, and I think that we forget that, um, that not, not everybody uh, got into this to interact with adults. Um, at my husband's old school, he was in the locker room one day when the um, hockey coach came in and said, all right, first orphanage that needs a hockey coach, I hope they'll let me know, you know. So I think he was sort of feeling it with the parents that day. Um, it takes a minute. <laughs> it takes a minute. Um, we all know that in schools like ours, parents can expect a very high level of customer service, right? They are paying a lot. And with that, they expect a lot of service. And, and I think it's probably better just to really spending a lot of money to use our options and they, they have the sense that they are buying something and, and we have to then work within what's ethical and fair to also meet that kind of customer service need. Um, I do have to sometimes warn parents. I do this sort of, your daughter's headed off to college talk every spring at Laurel. And I do have to sometimes warn them that they will not get nearly the receptiveness and customer service and sort of sometimes concierge level um, of care at University of Michigan that they are accustomed to getting uh, at Laurel School. Um, and I think another thing that can frighten educators is that parents will sometimes flex their power because they're uncomfortable. Um, and, and I, I can think of a few examples from my work. You know, one is there was a mom who I, school, I think, was probably really unpleasant for her, and her daughter struggled through our school. And she would um, come to all my talks, though I, clearly she could not stand me. And I'm always like, why are you, you clearly don't like me. <laughs> like, why are you here? And she would wait, in the, and she'd always have like a question in the back, and it was always a gotcha question. You know those families? Like, you see the, you see the parent walk in for the meeting, you're like, okay. Right. Um, and I would always call on her, and she would always gotcha me, and I sort of became accustomed to this. But she was always showing me um, this power. And in my practice, I, I one time had a dad whose daughter was struggling, so that's why she was in my office. And, and I think for him it was humiliating that his kid needed help. You know, I think that for families it can feel like that. And I remember when it came time to pay my bill, he stood, I was sitting at my desk and he stood up over me and counted 50s onto my desk. And it was really powerful and, and uncomfortable. But I remember thinking, you're letting me know something about how painful and humiliating this is and this is how you're managing it. So I think that that contributes to our own discomfort in these moments. So under these conditions, we share opinions with parents about their child, right? And then we advise them about what we want them to change uh, or do differently. And then we also hear from them about what they want us to do differently. And I think that if we look at it this way, it's like, it's amazing this ever works at all, right? <laughs> like, that we walk out with any successful conversation on any day, given how much is at work in the room, um, that's really quite an accomplishment. Okay, so how do we make these things work really well? Here's what we do. We have to remember that when we are sharing opinions or advice, what matters absolutely least is that we are right or that we have the authority to share the opinion and advice. 
These are immaterial. And the sooner we embrace that, the better. Okay, if we don't have that, what do we have? We have a relationship that we establish where we communicate that we value the parent and the student. That is all we have. We have nothing without it. And the way I think about this is when I was in high school, so I grew up in Colorado, and um, I happened to babysit for a dermatologist. And I remember him saying to me when I was about 13, he was like, you know, you should start wearing sunscreen, right? Like, we just know this, and we're in Colorado, and sunscreen's a good idea, and you should be wearing sunscreen on a regular basis. And I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> what do you know, right? And then about six months later, our family friend Carla came to visit. So Carla is my lifelong mentor. She's the reason I'm a psychologist. I met her when I was six, and um, she was in her training as a psychologist, and I just fell in love with her, and I came home one day, and I said, I'm gonna do what Carla does, and I actually, was talking to Carla the other day here, now 42 years later, like we're just like, she has stayed an incredibly close person in my life. So she came to visit us from London where she was training. And uh, she said to me, she's like, you know, Lisa, you should probably wear sunscreen. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I then like that day, I was like, mom, I need sunscreen. You know, the kind that won't make me break out because I'm a teenager. Okay, that story for me completely gets it. Like the dermatologist, I'm like, whatever. Like, you know, you're, I don't know you really. Like, I, you, I, you, I babysit your children. I don't have any real feeling for you. Um, but Carla, the psychologist, tells me to wear sunscreen, and I'm all over it because we have a relationship, because I feel she truly cares for me. So our job is to create a powerful and positive relationship that becomes the catalyst for a successful conversation. But I really want you to think about that. Without that catalyst, and I mean it in chemical terms, everything else you do is inert. The relationship is the catalyst for this to turn into anything useful. So how do we do that? First of all, we have to communicate that we really value the parent. So I want you to think of it in terms of controlling the air. And I'll tell you exactly what I mean. You cannot underestimate how powerful the way in which you enter a room is, the attitude in your mind is, the feeling you are having as you enter. I wish I had a way to quantify it, but I think it just has an extraordinary force. And I remember the first time I started really thinking about this was when I was in my postdoc. Um, and I was at this psychological clinic that was run by a really brilliant guy named Bob who was a psychoanalyst. And he was one of those psychoanalysts who acted like a psychoanalyst all the time. You know, like in every single interaction, he just was nodding and mute. And he was brilliant and we knew it. And he had us all like so uncomfortable all the time, right? Because we were like, you know, end of our training, we're, like we're in our like late 20s, we're all sort of like fragile in a million ways. And then Bob just, he felt like he had like x-ray vision and never spoke, right? I mean, he was just terrifying to us. And I remember one of the older trainees, he said to me, he's like, oh, here's how you deal with Bob. Tell yourself Bob likes you. Just convince yourself that Bob thinks you're great and interact with him accordingly. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I started trying this. So I'd like go into the shared like coffee room and I'd be like, hey Bob, how are 
you? And Bob would be like, oh, hi, Lisa, how are you? Like, you could get Bob to be normal. Like, you could actually, like, you could, you could, like, extract from this, like, brilliant psychoanalyst, like, normal human functioning. But if you, if you walked in cowering and anxious, it just got weirder and weirder and weirder. And so it's just, it was like my first lesson in controlling the air, right? Like I'm gonna not wither under Bob's stare. I'm gonna walk in, see him, and ask him about his kids, right? So this is something that I think is really critical for us to start with when we think about showing parents that we value them. So here's what I want you to do, and I, don't do it now, but as homework, because you need homework, because you've had a luxurious time away from your school, and everybody knows you're a Mohawk, so I say to them, no, 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 I came home with homework, it wasn't that great. Um, I want you, this is weird, but I want you to do it anyway, I want you to develop a personal mantra that you say before you meet with a parent, and especially an angry parent. Here is one that you might start with. I want you to think, I am meeting with someone who has generously shared their son or daughter with me. And we are, I am fundamentally grateful for that opportunity. I am meeting with someone who has generously shared their child with me, and I am grateful for that opportunity. You know how like you set an intention at the start of yoga, right? Set an intention, and believe me, I'm a really well-trained academic psychologist. I cannot believe these are words coming out of my mouth, but I, I, I really believe this. I just saw Colleen, my friend. I didn't know you were here. Hi. Um, okay. Um, so set your intention, and it should be something of they. We are on the same team. We all want the same thing. Something, something that is yours, but it is your heir. And especially if it's 2.50 and it's a mad parent and you've got a crazy day that you've had and you've got a crazy evening ahead of you, then especially set the intention, right? Especially get your right air on. From there, take time for courtesies. Again, remembering, like, they may be terrified of walking in the building. They may be terrified of what you're about to say. They may be worrying that you're about to kick their kid out. So if you walk out to them and be like, oh, hey, I'm really glad you're here, right? And you're just doing business as regular, their anxiety is going up, up, up. That will not make the meeting go better, right? So first you have the, I am so grateful that you have shared your child with me. We are all teams, partners in this, and we all want nothing but the best for your kiddo. That is your, whatever your air is. And then you go out and you say, hi, I'm so glad you're here. How are the roads, right? Like, like, that, like just those little things. Their anxiety, okay, you're not about to kick my kid out if you're asking me about the roads, right? Whatever it was. And they seem so small, but they are so reassuring to parents who are probably really not happy to have to be having this meeting with you. How are the roads? Or thank you. Or if you are 30 seconds late for the meeting, I am so sorry to make you wait. I so appreciate your patience. Like, whatever. You are the most courteous, the most polite. You are really kind. Um, then, I will also say, if, you, if it's going on a long time, where you have to end the meeting, here is a phrase that um, is an extraordinarily courteous way to do it. You can say, I am so sorry. We, I know our meeting is coming to an end, and I know there's something else I have to do. I don't want my attention to be divided. You deserve my full attention. Can we find another time to carry this on? 
right? It does not matter that they have already run way over or whatever and that you just want them out, right? It, you have to really continue to be extraordinarily courteous. Um, in the same vein, I think you know this, but I'm just gonna restate it, and maybe you wanna remind your teachers too, it's really scary to get a call from the school, right? As a, as a parent, you know, now that we all know the phone number that's ringing, I have to tell you, I mean, I've got two kids, and if I can see that the school's calling, and knock on wood, so far it's only been the nurse around like, you know, bonks on heads, um, like my anxiety, whoo, like the second the call comes. So I would even encourage you, if you have the time, send an email with a friendly subject line, right, because they're gonna see that first. Um, happy, you know, do you have a moment, you know, like, and then a smiley face or whatever you need to warm it up and say, I'd love to touch base with you at your opportunity, you know, about like something, you know, nothing to worry about, like something like that before you uh, get on the horn. And, and again, we're trying to reduce resistance and we're trying to reduce anxiety. And all of these little teeny tiny things we do go very, very far. Okay, then make no assumptions. Make no assumptions. I will say, the longer I practice and the more time I spend around humans, I, I just have started to feel like I know nothing. I know nothing, right? I know nothing about what goes on with people. I know nothing about what goes on in people's homes. Um, I, I, I feel so, so much smarter the dumber I let myself be about these things, right? Just like, I, I just, it's all, a mystery to me. Unless somebody directly tells me something, I do really not know what's going on. Um, and I, when I am around people who are making all sorts of inferences about other people, I can just feel my shoulders getting up around my ears because I'm like, we don't know. We don't know. And you may have this experience as a school person, and I have this experience at Laurel, that sometimes um, multiple adults will seek me out to discuss the same conflict they're having. And so then I will hear about the same conflict from two to three sides. And then you hear all of the inferences that people are making, and you are the one who actually has all the knowledge of what the other person has said. And that's what's helped me be thinking more and more, I have no idea what's going on. Right? I, I, all I'm doing is just making up my story of what's going on. I really don't know. Let me give you a sense of like what it means really to make assumptions and the cost of doing so. So I'm going to give you some scenarios and I want you to imagine being that person. I want you to really embody it mentally. And then I'm gonna say something to you as an administrator. You ready? Okay, here's the first one. Your older daughter was diagnosed late with a learning disability, right? So she, she really kind of struggled through school and then late in the game you got her tested. You wonder if your son, who himself sometimes struggles, might also have a mild learning disability. Um, and you wonder if you've been remiss, right? You feel guilty about not catching it earlier for your daughter, and now your son, let's say he's fifth grade, is starting to struggle, and you're thinking, uh-oh, have we um, dropped the ball here? Okay. So now let's say I'm the middle school director, and you're in my office, and I say, hey, um, Kevin spends, says that he's spending hours on his homework each night, which really does not line up with what he's producing. I've talked to several of his teachers, and we think he needs to be making better use of his time. Right? I mean, that's going to land really, really badly. Right? Again, super well-meaning. Super well-meaning on the part of the person who's saying it. But there's a whole background worry there that we're not taking fully into account. Um, let me give you another one. 
And I think this happens way more in our schools than we know. You have run into financial problems that you do not want the school to know about. And you are taking out high interest loans to continue to maintain your lifestyle and cover the tuition, right? And I will tell you, I've had several families I've cared for in my practice where I know this is happening and I know they are still driving incredibly nice cars to incredibly nice schools. And this, this stress is tremendous in the back. So say that's you. Um, and then say the parent is in around a tutor or math problem or something like that. If I were to say to you, oh, you know what? I, my, my daughter had the same problem when she was you know, in the ninth grade. We had this fabulous tutor who helped us. Like she wasn't, you know, she, she's not cheap, but oh, she's totally worth it. Like I'll give you her number, right? Even something like that can really feel like the parent is thinking, okay, we're, you're here and I'm here and we're not connecting. So we want to be really, really careful about assumptions, and I'm gonna give us a lot of things to do instead. Okay, so that's how we value the parent. We control the air, we're incredibly courteous, we make no assumptions about what's really going on. How do we communicate that we value the student? And I will tell you this next, next slide, if you take nothing from this morning, this is the only thing I want you to start to do all the time. We begin every communication with a parent with a prepared, thoughtful description of the student that is totally unique to that student and communicates that you know that student and you enjoy that student, which then communicates by extension that you respect and admire the parents. So here's how I came to this. I came to this as a clinician because I take care of teenagers and the nature of taking care of teenagers is they're my client. Like I really need to be their advocate. And so I ask parents to do this incredible thing which is to send their teenage daughter to me and I usually, if the girl wants therapy, I will ask that she meet with me first. So I ask them to send their kid to a stranger and meet with me for two to three sessions to figure out if I'm the right person and what's going on at which point I will meet with the parents. Especially now as the mother of a teenager, I realize what a big ask this is. Like, and as a clinician, I continue to make it because clinically it's the right decision. But what I need by the time the parents arrive is I need them to trust me and to feel comfortable letting me continue to do work with their daughter. And of course, by the time they're in my office, things are not good, right? So we're already under delicate conditions. And I also, for a lot of teenagers, can't do great work if the parents don't trust me, right, and don't feel comfortable letting me develop a private relationship with her. So what I started to do, and I don't know why I started to do it, but it really made such a difference in my work, is before that session where the parents would come in, so I'd met with the daughter two or three times, before that session where the parents would come in, I would stop multitasking, which I almost never stop multitasking. And I would sit at my desk and I would close my eyes and I would think, what can I say about their daughter that I cannot say about any other kid I've cared for? Like what is a really true thing that has nothing to do with the problems that have brought her to me? Just a true thing about this child, this human child. And so then I would get the parents in the waiting room, and I'm doing the same thing, controlling the air, courtesy, courtesy. I mean, believe me, they don't want to be in my office for sure. 
and I have them come back to my, my office, and they sit down, and before we start, I'll say, look, soon we'll talk about what brought Molly my way, but I have to tell you this. And like, I mean, I, and it has to be like fully honest and wholehearted. I will say, I have to tell you this. I've taken care of a lot of girls, and I don't know that I have ever seen a girl who is as devoted to her friends and as advocating and kind about them as your daughter. Like, it's something that they will recognize, right? Something, it has to be something that'll be like, you saw my kid. You saw my kid. Separate from all the other things that have brought me to my office, you saw my kid. And I will tell you, my aim is to get the dad to cry. Right? I can get the moms, like that, like usually I can get the moms. But if I can get, like, and I know when I am sitting there, I know that sounds diabolical, but it's really not, it's really not. When I am sitting at my desk, I'm thinking, what will make a dad cry about this kid? I know, I use weird yardsticks, but I want you to do that. I want you to do that, because what, if I can get it right, if I can get it right, and you have seen enough children in your time, you should be able to pick out that one thing about this child. If you can do that, they will trust you, they feel you like their kid, right? You like my kid. You, I mean, you got, those of you who are parents, if somebody tells you they like your kid, <gasps> you love that person, right? And I remember, um, and I, maybe she was fabulously diabolical in her own way, I remember when my older daughter was in maybe seventh, fifth grade, I ran into her teacher, Jean, who of course I love, because Jean said to me, oh, Ellen, Ellen's so earnest, which she is, and I never thought about her that way, and I was like, oh, she is, Ellen, my Ellen is earnest, and then if Jean had said, like, let's give her a tattoo, I'd be like, okay, like, whatever you want, like, lady, I'll follow you anywhere, so this is the, like, the, the magic trick, the magic trick to a parent's heart is to do this. It's not easy. And it's really not easy on kids who have made things incredibly hard. And so here's what I want you to be mindful of. It can't be this. Can you read this? The Berlitz Guide to Parent-Teacher Conferences? Teacherese marches to a different drummer. English, nuts. Uh, Teacherese needs to brush up on his people skills. English, homicidal. Uh, Teacherese, creative. English, none too bright. Uh, Teacherese, very creative. A moron, actually. Um, she's a riot. I can't stand her. Uh, he's doing just fine. What's your kid's name again? Right? So if this child has untreated ADHD, it is not okay to say, oh yeah, he is a, oh, he's a spitfire, right? It's code. They know, they, like they're struggling with this at home. They're gonna hear that as code for, we're struggling with him at school. So as you think about your, your statement, the thing you're gonna really say, watch for the euphemism around the thing that's making you challenged by that child or challenging the school by the child. Like it has to be the absolute best nugget, the best nugget of that child. And then you describe it back to the parents. And if you're struggling, like get colleagues to help you. Um, you can also do something like this. And I've done this um, with families at Laurel. 
where you just tell them about something they wouldn't have otherwise known. So I, and I do this, I really do this, regardless of like how, I, you know, how hard the conference is going to be or how hard the conversation is going to be, I just feel like this is a gift we can give parents that we forget about. And so I'll sometimes say, oh, oh good, no, no, I want to talk with you about Molly, but I have to tell you this like, thing, I just got to tell you this thing that happened the other day. I was walking down the hall behind her and she didn't know I was there and I saw her stop and pick up somebody else's trash that they had left uh, before her and just throw it in the can. And I gotta tell you, like, not a lot of our kids would do that. Like, you should be really proud of her. She's a great kid. Yeah, I mean, just something even teeny tiny like that gets you yards and yards ahead of where you were. The last thing I wanna say on really kind of getting quickly to the heart of how much we want to be useful in controlling the air is that sometimes we have to do it over the phone. And that's really hard. And yet we have to be able to do it. My current method for that is when the parent calls and they, you know, they're like, hi, Dr. Demore, and so and so and so and so. I will almost quickly, the first thing I'll say is, how can I help? Like, that, like just like that, like, how can I help? And that quickly, you know, and I'm very conscious of my tone and very conscious of saying that very quickly into the conversation. And that, that moves things in the direction we want to go often um, quite well. So here's how we want to think about it. Collaboration is only possible when we view parents as valued teammates in the effort to understand and support their child. When parents feel that we genuinely care for their child and want to help their child thrive, and when we make it clear that everyone is on the exact same team, which is the child's team. All right, I'm gonna show us now some of the work of collaboration and then we'll break and then we'll do case studies. So now we get into some of the real nuts and bolts. So giving parents hard feedback and advice. I also know there should be copies of all of this content. Barbara, where are you? I never met you on the way. Hi, Barbara. Um, You've got copies of all of the, um, at the end of the day, I'm gonna give the, the handout that I had that with all the slide content. Great, okay, so it's all, all of the written words are coming your way. I should have mentioned that at the beginning, I'm sorry. It was a little weird on the way in. Um, okay, so here's how now I have hard conversations with parents. I have a very systematic and stepwise approach. So first you've got your courtesies, right, your air control and your description of the child. Right, your positive, not connected to why the child is there, description of the childhood, child. Then, I think you say a few words about what's working. Here's what's working really well right now in the school for Bobby. And then, you share an observation, just the facts, about what's not working. So you say, you know, Bobby, you know, like you've got your phrase, like Bobby, like that kid is so great, you know, he is so fun, I have to tell you, He's the kind of kid that if you give him something fun, he makes it more fun. You know, we have a lot of kids around here, if you give them something fun, they kind of like sour it. Your guy makes fun things more fun. You know, it's like something like that. And then you say, okay, thank you for coming in. Here's what we're noticing. Bobby's often pretty late to school and he doesn't always have his stuff. Right, that's it. Like just observe, just the facts, the straight up facts of what you see. The first thing you want to find out is, do they know what you're talking about? Right, that's a really important branch in this conversation. Because we've all had those conversations where like, fine, like things have gotten so bad at school that we're gonna finally bring it up with the parents. And we mention it and it's clear the parents have no idea about this. You don't wanna keep going down a particular road if this is total news to the parents. 
If this is total news to the parents, you have to stop there and say, it sounds like this is news, right? And acknowledge that. That would be hard as a parent to walk into a school and have no idea about the problem that's being laid in front of you. And then the next question is, are they seeing what you are seeing, right? So if it's news, you have to deal with the fact that it's news. If it's not news, if they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, no, he's like that. See how they feel about it, right? They might be like, oh yeah, no, we're all like that. We call our family the yard sale. Have you ever heard that? We had a family parent say this lately. You know what a yard sale is? Um, well, so I grew up in Colorado, and it was when, it was when um, you'd be on a lift, and somebody had a really bad wipeout while skiing, and their stuff was everywhere, right? Like their gloves were over here, and like two skis were off over there. And then, of course, because we were horrible teenagers, we'd go, yard sale! Like we'd yell that from the lifts. So, so like, I had to be like, oh, we're like, oh, I was like, oh, I never know. I've, I've, I'm on my 14th phone. You know, like if the parent says that, you need to know that they are totally comfortable with Bobby like showing up to school late and not having his stuff. So again, you're going down a different path than if they're like, yes, we're really worried. So you're doing assessments all the way about where the parent is with you in this information. Do they know? Then the next question is, are they worried about this? Then, pretend you're an anthropologist. And what you're trying to find out is, what does the parent think about this? And you should say, so what do you make of it, right? And again, neutral, curious, generous. And then say, how's it for Bobby, right? You're now collecting data, collecting data, collecting data. And if they are concerned about it, say, what have you tried? What has Bobby tried, right? It's not usually that the parent hasn't identified the problem and tried to fix the problem. So if we start as if they don't know what we're talking about and we're gonna tell them how to fix it, that doesn't tend to go over well. Um, and I, when I have people in my practice, and they present a problem to me, I always say, what have you already tried? Because first of all, it really does not sit well if I start telling them, and they're like, yeah, we tried that, didn't work. Yep, tried that too, didn't work. I mean, that's, that's not a profitable conversation. It also gives you a ton of information to find out what they've already tried. So what have you already tried? What has the student tried? What has helped? What has not helped? Here's the most valuable question I've ever come across. What else would it be helpful for me to know? What else would it be helpful for me to know? We had a meeting, the head of school and I had a meeting with an African-American family whose daughter would get herself into sort of minor disciplinary scrapes. And it was going on enough, 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 enough that we ended up together. And the parents let us know that there had been some interactions at the school that had not felt not racist with their daughter. And the parents brought them up tentatively, and we were you know, appropriately receptive. And then either Anne or I said, is there anything else you'd like for us to know? And they were like, well, actually, yes. And then they told us another story around where the girl had left her backpack, and that the girl was sanctioned when it felt like another kid who was white was not sanctioned, and this had been a source of injury at home for the girl and the family. And so they told us that story. And then we said, is there anything else you would like for us to know? And then it turned out there was another story underneath that story about um, the girl being sanctioned for a uniform violation uh, around some shoes she was wearing that the girl and the family were under the impression were not a uniform violation shoes. And the girl had not said anything and had come home and it was an issue at home. 
And then we said, is there anything else you would like for us to know? And we kept going until they said, no, that's everything. And it was a much, much longer meeting than we would have ever dreamed it was going to be. And I remember going back to my office and thinking, if we had stopped that meeting with a kind of, well, all right, we've told you about our concerns, and they had walked out harboring all of that, the meeting itself would have turned into another injury layered over the various injuries this family had endured. So this question for me is the most useful question we have in our arsenal. Then I think we can say, what would you recommend we try? Right? What would you, on the school side, what guidance do you have for us? Then, only then, consider, consider making a suggestion. Here has been my repeated experience at Laurel, where we will have a child who we know well, and a problem that we feel we understand fully, and a very clear sense of the advice we want to give. You know, and it might be something like, we, need, we, we think your child needs to be evaluated for ADHD. Right? I mean, it be, might be something pretty clear cut, pretty straightforward, something we really feel like we've got a fantastic grip on. And I will sometimes think, we need a 20 minute meeting. We need a 20 minute meeting to like, get this done. And instead, I try to give us 50 to 60 minutes for those meetings. And I know like, we don't have that kind of time. Like, I know we don't. But what I have found is if we have that kind of time, and I go through this entire process here, I almost never make the recommendation I thought I was gonna make. And that, to me, has been reason enough to do this process. That the family knows the kid really well, too, and we want to partner with them, and so treating them as full collaborators in the process takes a lot more time. And my experience, though, is that two things come of that. One is, we actually modify the recommendation. I don't know that we've ever ended up saying what we thought we were going to say on the way into the meeting. I really don't. The other is, and this is the only one that matters, they'll take our advice at that point. Right? They're actually going to do what we want them to do. If we have spent 50 minutes hearing out what doesn't work, what they've tried, what we're missing, what else they want us to know, all of that, even if everything they say is totally predictable and you don't change your recommendation, I would say the odds of them taking the recommendation triple for every question you ask. And at the end of the day, that is much more efficient if they take the recommendation than getting out of the meeting fast. Here's another way to think about this, and I've been thinking about this a lot with regard to teenagers and advice giving, because you know we try to give advice to teenagers and it's often kind of a not altogether successful um, interaction. I think the problem with teenagers and giving them advice, and then I'll bring this over to parents, is that so often we're advising them on things they know much more about than we do, right? And like, who wants advice from somebody who knows less about something on the topic you're advising them on, right? And so like, I think for me a good example is vaping, right? They know a lot about vaping that we don't know, right? They can name 15 flavors. They can tell you like the various like recent developments in this. They can lay out all of the social lines of who does what vaping under what conditions at what parties and what used to be cool and is no longer cool. I mean, like, they understand the universe of vaping. We don't really understand vaping. Like we know like Juul, that's vaping. Like, I mean, like we know that, right? And 
so then I think when we're like, we need to talk about vaping, teenagers are like, okay, what? Right? I mean, they don't really expect us to be much use. Um, and I've started to think about that in terms of like advice giving to teenagers. If my own teenager were to come to me, it would be equivalent if she were to come to me and say, we need to talk about your mortgage. <laughs> right? Because I think like, what do you know about mortgages? Like, how could you possibly advise me on my mortgage? And it would not matter, right? It would not matter that maybe my kid had looked up mortgages online, had researched them at length, had discovered that the interest rates had changed and that we should probably refinance. Like, she might be totally accurate. Again, accuracy is immaterial, right? Accuracy is immaterial. Okay, so how could Ellen, who's now 15, have a successful mortgage conversation with me, right? And this is like, we're the people saying, we need to talk about your mortgage when we're saying to people, we need to talk about your kid, right? I mean, that's the interaction. So how can we have a successful mortgage interaction? So first, Ellen would have to say, mom, do we have a mortgage, right? And I'd say, well, yeah, we have a mortgage, right? And then she'd have to say, well, what kind of mortgage? Like, 30 years fixed, like, what do we got, you know? <laughs> the real answer is, I don't know, ask your father. But, um, <laughs> but like, say I know. So I'd be like, oh, you know, it's 30 year fixed. I don't know, I don't know. And she's like, well, then she'd have to say, well, how far into the mortgage are we, right? And then I'd have to say, I don't know, like 15 years. And then she'd have to say, well, what's our interest rate? And then I'd have to <laughs> so pretend I know. And then she'd have to say, oh, you know, I was looking online. I think the interest rates have changed. Like, you guys could probably refinance and save some money, right? But she would have to ask me 40 questions before I would even entertain the possibility that she could advise me on this thing. Okay, so we are, like, the mortgage is their kid. They know more about their kid than we will know. So for us to wade into advice-giving conversations without asking a lot of questions is not a great use of their time or our time. Okay, this is much more fun. Giving parents happy feedback and advice. So you're courteous and you describe the child. Uh, and again, it's fun to have good news about kids, right? And this may be something you do on the sidelines of a game, things like that. Um, I think we should ask them questions about how the child experiences school, how the parent experiences school, right? When families are happy, that's a great time to collect data on what's working. Um, find out more about what the child's hoping for, their parents' hopes, how you can help those along, right? This is a really good time to be like be in the service business. You know, man, she's Molly doing so great. You know, how's it going for her? How does she like school? What is she hoping will happen next year? How can we help that? You know, I mean, these are money in the bank, money in the bank, do it. Um, and then if you have advice about room to grow, that's a good time to give it, but you may not. And again, these courtesies, these light conversations, these moments where you're letting them know how much you really respect their kid, that just that you can't build these relationships any other way and you can't do anything meaningful in the absence of the relationship. Okay, so that's when we're giving feedback to them. What about when they give feedback to us, right? Because sometimes they're the one who's made the appointment and we're waiting for them. So again, Start with courtesy, start with your description of the child, right? Just, oh, I got to see you. I want to tell you this one thing about Molly, right? So just do it every time. Every interaction with a parent is an opportunity to put money in the relational bank, right? Every hallway greeting, every sideline, every fundraising dinner that you're thinking, how fast can I get out of here, right? It's, it's money in the bank. 
And I will tell you, um, I do a lot of my work by phone call for Laurel, and then I end up having very, very intimate conversations by phone um, with families. They tell me things about their own histories that are very hard and difficult. And I actually don't have a way to put together the names and faces of every parent in our community. And so I greet every parent in the hall as if they told me about some horrible experience from their own childhood. Uh, so I, every parent I see in the hall, I'm like, hi, hi, hi. Because I think, if you're the parent I had that call with and I go breezing past you in the hall, you don't know that I don't know who you are. So I think, again, you know, just those, those small courtesies, generosities, decencies, it's not that they always get you so much, it's that they can cost so much if we don't do them. And so that's what matters. Keep the child at the center. Um, Ann Klotz, uh, my, my boss at Laurel, this is her line. She, you know, if you keep the child at the center, everything else goes as it should. And, and that is really true. Um, be non-defensive while maintaining proper boundaries, right? So if parents are complaining to you about other division directors, if they're complaining to you about people who are not underneath you, right? Thank you so much, I'll pass that along. That's really helpful, have you let them know? Um, be an anthropologist to ask a ton of questions and then rely on the chain of command as needed. And you all know how this works within your schools about families where the, parent, the head of school will say, I will, I will take care of them. Um, I had a, a very unexpected interaction that has dramatically changed how I take feedback from parents about how unhappiness about school. So I'm gonna tell you the story and then we'll take a break. So Ellen is my 15-year-old daughter and Caroline is my almost eight-year-old daughter. And Ellen is earnest, and Caroline is fluorescent. She is, like, she's a neon personality. And every feeling Caroline has is at its absolute full expression. And I will say it's, it's like it's um, moderated a little bit as she's come to be eight. But at five, when she was getting ready to start kindergarten, she was in her full fluorescence. And so the form that it took on a particular evening is that there was a back to school or starting kindergarten ice cream social on the playground of her new kindergarten. So she attends Shaker Heights Public Schools. Our sweet little elementary school is in our community. It's 10 blocks from our house. We walk down there. And they were hosting an ice cream social on the playground for all of the incoming kindergartners. So of course they're nervous, right? They're nervous and excited. And all of the nervousness and excitement for Caroline got bundled up in this ice cream social. So the ice cream social was from four to six. We roll in about 4.45, you know, because we got two kids and lots of stuff going on. And we're in line for the ice cream social. And it's, you know, they're just handing out little ice cream sandwiches, nothing fancy. And we're in line and they give the last ice cream sandwich to the fourth grader standing in front of us. Okay, so Caroline gets up to the front and these women are like, oh honey, like we're out, like we're done, we don't have any ice cream sandwiches. At which point Caroline erupts, right? Caroline like becomes Mount Vesuvius, <laughs> right? She cannot handle it. Um, it is very much a function of all of her anticipation and excitement about um, you know, starting kindergarten. We cannot stay. She cannot regulate this, we cannot stay. I have to walk Caroline the 10 blocks back through my neighborhood where everybody knows I'm a child psychologist, right? Like, hey, hey, right? With this fully tantruming, completely out of her gourd, five-year-old. 
who I had to serve so much ice cream to at home to get this thing back, and you know, with the whipped cream and yes, sprinkles, whatever, just make it stop, right? And so, okay. So here's the insight. This is worth it, I hope. Okay, so here's the insight. So as we're walking the 10 blocks through my neighborhood in a mildly humiliating fashion, I am aware that I am very angry with Caroline, right? We were gonna have this really fun playground experience. It was a dopey little, you know, ice cream sandwich. You know, I told her I'd give her more at home. And she just, she's, she is who she was. She was who she was at that time. And so like, it, was an, it turned into an awful night. And I was already tired, right? And here we am dragging this kid the 10 blocks home. And I'm really annoyed with her. I'm just annoyed with her. Okay, I cannot get annoyed with her. Like you can't get mad at her. She's the five-year-old who just got disappointed about the ice cream sandwich. So then this crazy thing starts to happen in my mind. I start imagining the phone call I could make the next day to the school, right? Because I can't get mad at her, but guess who I could get mad at, right? And I am mad, I am mad. And I just, I want, like, I'm just let me stop and reassure you, I would never make this call. I would never make this call because I work on a, at a school. But I'm starting to picture it. I'm starting to picture it. I'm like, I could call and be like, how could you do that? You know, they're so anxious. And it, we all, it was 4.45, and the event was supposed to go from 4 to 6. And like, how could you give it to a fourth grader? She's not even coming into kindergarten. And oh, my, you know, like, you, I could totally do it, right? Like, I totally had all of the ammunition I needed for like a really angry phone call. But I wasn't really that mad about it. I'm like, I totally get it, right? But I was just mad, and I needed a place to put it. Okay, so then like the fantasy continues. I'm like, okay, so what could the person on the other end of the line said, what could they say that would have brought me back under control? And I thought, what I really wanted was empathy for how crummy the rest of the night was, right? And I thought, man, if the person on the other line said, I am so sorry, and we are so sorry she got so upset, that must have been awful. I would have been like, good to go, thank ya. Right, like, like, I don't care if you ever have another ice cream social or not. Like, I just had a horrible evening and I want somebody to be nice to me about it. Like, that's, that's all it was. Okay, so now, here's what I think a lot of our phone calls are. And I'm gonna, then we'll take a break and then we'll get going again. I think a lot of our phone calls are, people work hard. Their days are long. They have something, they, they have tough days, they have a tough commute home, they get in the door, they barely cobble dinner together, they're like so psyched for their kid to go to bed because they're totally gonna catch up on Breaking Bad. And, and like, 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 this is all that's holding them together, right? This is, <laughs> um, and then their 15-year-old daughter, actually, and this is not about Ellen because right now she's totally easygoing, but for this nanosecond when I'm in New York and she's in Cleveland. Um, they're totally easy going, okay, so, you know, then that happens. And then there's some dumb thing with the math assignment where it's unclear what was supposed to happen. And this is the second time that same teacher has not given good instructions. And then my 15-year-old has a full-on meltdown because she is a 15-year-old. And 
she is like quite literally kids will you know fetal position on the kitchen floor and as a mom I am like trying to help and I'm thinking I really wanted to watch Breaking Bad and I really want you to pull it together and I can't get mad at you even though I think you're overreacting but I can't get mad at you but like what was that teacher thinking when they, you know, this is the dynamic and so then I think then the phone call comes I need to let you know for the second time in a month this math teacher got this wrong and Okay, so this has really shifted my focus in these conversations, right? And it has shifted it very dramatically to, I am so sorry, how did that play out at home? How did that play out at home? She was, blah, 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 and say, I am so sorry, that must have been awful. Is she okay, are you okay? Right, you may actually be done at that point. Right, you might say, I will definitely follow up with the math teacher. I gotta tell you, I'm so grateful for that terrible night. It has helped me understand so much that I did not understand about why families get upset with us. Okay, so why don't we take a break, come back at 10.25, and we'll get down to business. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. At every table, there's two sheets of paper. There's the same thing on both sheets. It's a scenario sheet. And in total in the room, there are six different scenarios. So table three and table seven may have the same scenarios, and that's how I want it. So here's what I want you to do. And I just gave two sheets so that we didn't have to have four people huddled around a single sheet. With your table mates, I want you to address these scenarios. And here's what I mean by address. It's one thing to sort of have the theoretical sense of how you want this thing to go or what you might do. I think it is a completely separate thing to have the words you would say, the actual language you would use to accomplish those things. And my favorite part about conferences where we get a whole bunch of seasoned educators together is that everybody has their best lines, right? So this is the share your best lines segment of this morning's program because they are just invaluable. You now have all of my best lines. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through this and look at them and feel free to share you may not have, these are not easy ones, and I don't have some clear answer of what I'm looking for. Share your thinking with us, share how you would, like the various branching in your decision making, right? Like what kinds of questions would you ask, and then what would be the contingencies those questions would inform you on? Um, but I, what I want us to do, I'm gonna give you time to work on these. I'll give you about 15 minutes to do both. I want us to then come together again, and I'll have the scenarios, I'll put them up on the screen, because you'll only be looking at a percentage of the ones that are gonna, we're gonna cover. I want you to tell us, what would you do? What would you say? What are the words that would come out of your mouth? How would you tackle this? What's your thinking? Okay, go. We have six scenarios. We'll do 10 minutes on each. We're gonna wish we had a half an hour on each. So which tables had scenarios one and two. Okay, so let's get the mic over there. Did only one table have scenarios one and two? We did seven. 
Oh, you guys have made it all crazy. Okay, who's ready to talk about scenario one? Okay, do we have, um, I, think, um, I think it's this table eight has scenario one? Terrific. And everyone, you must have a mic in your face before you speak. Okay. And use it. So while um, we hand off the mic, here's scenario one for the rest of you. You are meeting with parents who would like to register their son for a higher level class than has been recommended for him by his teachers. That's why he, they're in your office. You know, based on the son's performance and your conversation with his teachers, the, that the recommendation that was made was a good one. How do you respond? Um, so, <laughs> sorry. What we said was to first have the, ask the parent kind of why they thought that their son should be in a higher level class and to delve into it from that angle. So are they flying through their homework at night? Is this something that you're seeing at home? Um, and also to, to validate the parent that, you know, their son's really doing well in school, it's going great. Um, and to think about kind of the angle of what's best for the child. So not wanting to push him too hard to try to make sure that he's being supported and at his level um, and to try to use that stuff. Am I missing something we said? What else do you have? Who else had scenario one? What else? You can, okay, good. So we had a similar response to trying to unearth why it is they thought that um, that, that placement was more appropriate. Um, so we had some of the same ideas, but um, when we kind of cut to ultimately, do you make changes or not? Obviously, it's really dependent on the scenario, but it's what is uh, important is clarity with the parents around. Uh, well, here's here are the concerns. Here what we think. Here's what we think about why we made this placement. Here's what it may mean to the amount of work that he has to do. Um, we talked about why it's better to. Uh, do well in the level where you were placed versus being someplace where um, a higher level that you're not going to perform at. And ultimately, if this is the, if this is something we want to continue to pursue, we think it could be a heavy lift. Here are the things that we can do to try and make that lift more feasible, more possible. Here's what we need from you as parents to really make this be something that we can work towards. Are you willing to partner with us on? Uh, on making this happen. There's a lot of nodding, right? So if you're going to go against our recommend, I love the term heavy lift, right? Go put that in your best lines. I'm putting that in my best lines collection here. Could, um, I, could I add one thing? Yes, I, please. I'm, I'm in the same table. We just added, I, I liked your question about what else do we need to know from you? Is there anything else we need to know? Um, when I did diversity work, there were a lot of uh, kind of feelings around advanced placement and who got chosen in those classes and who didn't. Uh, especially for girls in math and science classes, and especially for kids of color in those same advancement classes. And so hearing that, again, allowing that space to possibly be the reason why they are there, feeling like that may, maybe they got underhanded, you know, they didn't get the right treatment that other parents get. Uh, and there was also a feel, feeling that entitled parents get to argue to get their kids into higher classes. And so I think that was a really nice question, a way to phrase it, open it up and say, is there anything else you want to share with us? I would say that should be a boilerplate question in any interaction with a parent. Is there anything else that would be helpful for me to know? It just, I, you cannot lose with that question. And even if they're like, no, they'll be so glad you asked it. Other people who had scenario one or who have guidance on scenario one. Back there, all the way back there. 
I, I was the parent on the receiving end of this with my high school student who moved from independent schools to New York City public schools and had scored a region score that made her eligible for a higher level math class. But when I submitted, the, they placed her in a lower level one. And I submitted the recommendation to put her in the higher level one and the math department chair called me. Um, and they talked about what the class looked like, what the class size was, what the teacher was, what the workload was, so that I could understand what I was asking for, for my daughter. But I like his question because I, I agreed. What she told me was children who have this score, yes, technically could be in the class, but we find that children who are successful in the class have this other score, which was a, like a many, many, I don't remember what the points were, but I feel like hundreds of points difference between her score and the other. And I said, okay, we'll just put her in the lower level math class. But I wonder if part of it was that I was worried about her anxiety, I was worried about her stress, and I didn't push. So I don't know if she had asked me about it, I don't know if I would have thought about the fact that it was my daughter who was being asked not to rise to the occasion. Um, and to take what was comfortable and familiar. But I thought that the department chair did a really nice job of explaining to me of what I was asking for, and is, did I understand what I was asking for, and is that what I wanted? And I said I didn't, I didn't want that. Thank you, that's really helpful. Other people on scenario, I, and actually just to like underscore some of this, they had a lot more information that they were immediately willing to give. So they were totally non-defensive. They were like, let us talk you through our reasoning, right? And then that brought you on board in that way. And another thing that came up from this table here, I love the way you did it, and I think it came up also the first one. You're gonna, you're open to the idea of the parent making the choice you did not recommend. And you're making a prediction about what that might be like for the child, so that you feel like you've done full disclosure, and you're saying it's gonna be a heavy lift, and in order to make that heavy lift viable, here's what we would recommend you provide, right? And they may or may not choose to provide it. One of the things that um, we've come to in our work at Laurel over the years is that when we are in disagreement with the parent's choice and yet the parent has the right to make that choice or we're gonna let the parent make that choice, we will make a prediction verbally and then we will also often follow up with a written documentation of the prediction we made in a really nice way. Say, we, yes, we will move her up into APBC calculus or whatever. Um, just to reiterate, we, we really want for her to be successful, so we recommend boom, ba da doom, ba da doom, ba da doom, ba da doom. Please keep us posted on how we can be of use, right? And so then, if she goes into that class and everything goes awesome, yay, right? And if she goes into that class and the wheels come off, you have the written to fall back on. And so that's how I've come to stomach when parents don't do what we really, really wish they would do. Here comes the mic, hold on. Thank you. I just wanted to add to that that so often in the moment, even though the parent is really coming on strong and pressing for what they want, they're so anxious. And so you may make that prediction and you may lay out very clear recommendations and when they walk out the door, they don't remember a word you they're, said. They're just relieved that you know, they got what they wanted. Yeah. Um, and so, so following up in that way increases the likelihood those things will happen. So, so many good reasons. And I do, well, let's come back to anxiety. It's coming up a lot, and I've got some thoughts on it, too. Anyone else on scenario one and its management? So here are the things we're starting to take away. Ask a bunch of questions about what the parent, what's driving this from the parent. Like You must want to find that out. And then offer, offer options, offer feedback on why the choice was made, and then sometimes we 
will go along with their choice, but then we follow up with our predictions about how we hope it will go, how we're worried it might not go, and then articulating that in writing. Okay, scenario two. You are wrapping up a meeting with a parent when she mentions that everyone is talking about how Allison, not her daughter, is disrupting and distracting all of her classmates. The mother offers you her sympathies about having such a difficult child in your school and asks what your plan is. How do you respond? Okay, who had scenario two? It should be the same tables. So, it's ready to go. So, well, those of us who are lower school directors said we have that conversation about once a week or more, so. So how do you do it? It's a common scenario. Um, I, what I talked about is um, that I remind families to kind of um, stay, in, stay in their story or stay in their lane, um, and in that um, talk to me about how your child is being affected by this situation. Um, remind them that I'm not able to talk about specifics regarding the other child, but do want to hear how their child is being affected, um, what that looks like at home, what they're hearing, and then talk about ways we can be more supportive of their child, while also letting them know that we are aware, and just as I'm working with you right now, also working with this other child's family to put supports in place there and work through it. I think in addition um, to asking about how it's affecting your child, which I think is, is very important to sort of keep the center on the child, as you were saying, sometimes um, I might ask about what are your hopes for your child? You know, what, oh. what do you hope, not could happen, but, but what are your hopes for your child, you know, given these concerns that you have, which is also, which is often about, you know, being safe, obviously, you know, that the your, their own child will be able to focus, like those kinds of things, and then we can talk a little bit about how to support that and get a little bit away from the other child thing. That is really helpful. What, what would you, you know, what are your hopes here? It's such a nice, also positive, friendly <laughs> way. To take that then one step further, another useful line is, um, if this could go any way you wanted, how would this go? That is a really great line when they are tearing down every option you put in front of them. And what is interesting is sometimes it causes them to voice what they were driving at all along and moving, sort of poking at from the sides. And they will say things sometimes like, I want that other kid out of my daughter's class. Right? Okay. You can't do that, but it's really useful to know that that's what's underneath all of this. And so my thinking often when parents are making it hard to have a successful conversation is that they are just tearing down everything we put in front of them. It's really easy to tear down. It's much harder to build, right? So to say, if this could go any way you wanted, what would happen here? And I had that conversation with a dad who was a board member. and. When I finally, and nothing we were suggesting worked, and finally the answer was, I don't want my daughter to have to take eighth grade math. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> okay, like, good to know, right? Like, that's a really different conversation than, well, what about this? No, what about that? No, you know, so that um, can get you out of some jams. But I would say a nice um, predecessor to that is, what are your hopes, right, to get it clear, and then you can really take it the rest of the way if you must. Others on scenario two. How did you resolve the no, 
Okay, so since he was a board member, <laughs> um, first of all, let's let's bear in mind I am a horrible person. Okay, so put that. Uh, that's the, okay. No, so I said, oh, you will need to talk to Miss Klotz about that. Like, you know, I, I mean, like she's the head of the school and he's a board member. But I also, as he left, I wanted to say, see if she'll also buy a dragon for your daughter. Like, 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 like we can't. Like, you are asking something so impossible, right? But no, that's how I ended. 